Welcome to Senlightened, a podcast for those playing a supportive role in the life and education of a child with special educational needs. Hosted by leading special educational needs mentor Amanda Sokel, this podcast aims to guide and support carers, educators, and parents on the journey to help our little ones thrive. Hello, I'm Amanda Sokel, and on this episode, we hear from someone who was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD much later in his adulthood. I didn't know what was going on. I actually just thought I was dumb. I had some teachers at school that made me feel really, really stupid, and I hung on to that for a very long time. Callum McCurdy always knew something didn't quite add up. Reading was difficult, remembering things wasn't easy, instructions were hard to follow. School was a struggle, as well as university, and then later as he stepped into the workforce. You wouldn't know it from his CV, though, with a stellar career in human resources. But he always had the feeling of being different. Those suspicions were confirmed when he was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD in his 40s only a few years ago. He describes how the revelation has been a positive one and has allowed him to take control of his life. These days, Callum is a neurodiversity speaker and helps organisations create and embrace radically diverse workplaces. Callum is such an inspiration as he reflects deeply on his own journey. I'm sure you'll enjoy this chat. Good morning, Callum. Well, good evening for you. I was thinking, actually, this is a very topsy-turvy situation because it's my morning, it's your evening, it's my autumn, it's your spring. I mean, it couldn't be any more topsy-turvy than that, could it be on the other side of the world? Oh, we've had a beautiful spring day here today in New Zealand. We're way down south at the bottom of the South Island in Dunedin, which I believe means Little Edinburgh. And um, yeah, beautiful spring day here. And interestingly, I'm not sure where you are, Amanda, and whereabouts in the UK are you? So I'm just southeast of London in Kent, and it's looking like it's going to be a beautiful autumn day. The sun's up, the sky's blue, so fingers crossed. the sun's done well for us, so I'm glad it's sort of travelled over your side of the planet and is going to do the same for you. My brother lives in the, the UK, up in the Lake District. He's been there for about 20 years, and he is dreading the onset of winter. So just taking it easy on uh, sending the, the messages about what the weather's doing here because we've had a rubbish winter. <laughs> yeah, the Lake District is beautiful. I'm not sure your winters are probably worse than our winters, though, so... I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Like we, so we had. While it is spring, we had snow here last week. There's always a, a blizzard that comes through around about um, mid September. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that that's, should be the last of it. And bring on summer, I say. Fingers crossed. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's so good to talk to you today, Callum. And I particularly wanted to talk to you because. I've been watching you from afar, literally from afar, Uh Um, and I was just checking actually, and it was September 2019 when you first realised or got diagnosed or or communicated Mm -hmm. that you've been diagnosed, I think, with dyslexia, and just watching kind of how you've relearned your identity almost Mm. as a result of that, and then an ADHD diagnosis has just been really fascinating for me. So I wanted to have a conversation 
about what life was like before that realization, uh, mm-hmm. particularly when you were working in organizations and to understand and, and try and help other people to understand what that might be like. Yeah, absolutely. Would love to. Uh, the caveat being that I tend to waffle. So you have full permission <laughs> uh, to go, all right, that's enough. Um, let's move on. Uh, cut in. Yes. Hand up and just uh, even mute me. <laughs> you have you have the power, um, courtesy of Zoom, Amanda. So go for it. Yes, it was around about that time that I, as you say, started to communicate. And I like how you um, talked about my identity with that as well. So I always knew I was dyslexic and never a diagnosis as a child, but always knew that I, um, I struggled. I can recall a day at primary school when we had moved from uh, picture books, which tended to be full page spread that uh, had maybe two lines at the bottom of it. And what those lines, those words were describing um, was what was in the picture. So you really didn't, it it was pretty easy to uptake. But then we kind of moved, graduated into chapter books or bigger books that had less pictures and more words. And I said to the teacher one day that, What happens when I read books like that, especially with justified columns, is I see the the start of the line and the end of the line and something in the middle, but it just all merges like this. And so I get a lot of white space. And so she said, let's get your eyes tested, which we did. Uh, I came back with pretty much perfect vision. I still have, I I wear glasses now, but don't need them all the time. I'm mid forties and, um, but my vision's always been good. And she said, your vision's fine. Um, So we don't know what the issue could be. Maybe you'll grow out of it. Now, I was one of those kids who never liked to make a fuss and who never, I didn't want people to feel bad or, and I I remember thinking that I know she's not onto the right thing here, but I don't want to make her feel incompetent. Not really the words I would have been using, but I can just remember having that sense or that feeling. And so I just shut up about it and I was quiet and I didn't complain about not being able to, not being able to read what also happened at the front of the classroom on the whiteboard, uh, on the blackboard in those days, um, yes. is the, yes, the numbers and the words that would all move around everything oh, wow. like, and would just become a sea of, of things. And I never really mentioned it to anybody. So I really struggled at school and I struggled through high school, through university as well. I got an honours degree in social geography and anthropology. There's a lot of sociology in there. And really it was about where people live and what they do while they're there and why they live where they do, which translates really well into the work that I've been doing over the last 20 odd years in leadership development, culture development, human resources around why people behave the way they do at work. And there was this one time in what must be year 12, we called it sixth form, we had to read all these books that, like Day of the Triffids, uh, 1984. I never read any of them. But my way around that was we had to work in groups and talk about the plot and the characters. And I would always make sure that I went last in that. And I would ask questions of uh, my classmates about the plot and the characters. And I would learn the book through them. So I would ask questions like, what would, if Charlie was alive today, um, how would he cope? What would he do? That sort of thing. And so I'd sort of get a sense of what these people were like, never read any of the books, but I just, I think the, and the work I do now is in a 
primarily is facilitating um, workshops and uh, sessions with executive teams, et cetera. And I think that was the day or that was the year that I started to become or learn my or hone my craft in um, facilitating because I just got used to to asking really good questions and the questions that people don't expect. Yeah. Yeah. Like what's the better question? What's the next question? And that just became my life. And also it became a really, really, what I think is a really, really savvy tactic for deflecting any interest away from me so that nobody really cottoned on to the fact that not only do I have dyslexia, but um, a couple of years ago in, in September 2019, as you said, Amanda, um, I sort of came out with being ADHD positive, which is I call ADHD positive because I think it that is a there is a positive to that, and we can have a wee, um, chat about that if you like. But the gist of it all is that I had to hide a whole lot of things, and I hid um, my identity, who I was. In fact, didn't really understand who I was because I didn't feel like I fitted in anywhere, not at school, certainly not at work. And I hid that, I masked and I deflected that by asking questions. And so I showed interest in everybody else. And everyone thought that I was super kind, which I kind of think I am. And they thought that I was really interested in people, which I genuinely am. But it was a brilliant masking technique and a way of deflecting. So the point being that not a lot of people know me that well. Um, not a lot of people knew me that well. Like I'm in the last two years, I've sort of opened up to that. But the, having had 42 years of living that way, it's really hard to break those habits. Um, right. Like it's, right. It's really, really hard. Yeah. There's a, a bit of a, an intro. Probably, a, I don't know, did it answer part of your question? For sure. Um, what I find interesting about your answer is, is a couple of things. The first one is this feeling that you had at school where you kind of knew something was wrong but didn't hmm. really know what it was and didn't want to kick up a fuss. And I remember my eldest son, seven, seven hmm. his identity. So he was saying, everybody in my class says literacy is the most important subject and I'm rubbish at it. And it's really damaging his identity. Uh, yeah. And he's really, you know, he's really creative. He's really able. He he learns very quickly. But this particular area was really challenging for him. And mm-hmm. we then had him assessed and he was, you know, he, he is dyslexic as well. And yep. at the point that he realised that there was a reason for it, it uh-huh. really changed his whole identity. He, he suddenly yeah. realised that it wasn't that he was stupid or dumb. It was that he had this thing that nobody else none of it you know the people he was comparing mm. himself to had and that was the reason so yeah I, I think that's really really interesting in in terms of the yeah. way you expressed it yeah I cop a lot of flack for this because I'm overtly positive about my neurodiversity and about neurodiversity in general and people think that that positivity takes away from or diminishes or minimizes in some way people's struggle. Like I struggle. Um, like I'm not the worst dyslexic. If there was a continuum or a spectrum, um, I certainly wouldn't be at the extremes because I've coped and I do cope and I have a whole lot of workaround strategies. And so one one of them is something that I use right here. Very early on, this was sort of um, at high school. I just cut out two bits of card and I would put that over lines and I'd read down that way I didn't know why I was doing that I just found one day that using a ruler under a line helped but if I isolated the line itself 
um, that really worked. I didn't think or know that that was dyslexia. But I get the frustration and I get not only the internal frustration that I have and the, the feeling of not good enough or the not not being able to do things, especially the basic things, the, the little micro failures that I still have every day, like it is frustrating. And with my ADHD, I'm also a bit of a nightmare to live with as well. Right. So I get that. Not no, only do I get frustrated. I'm sure that's it's not true. the case. It's true. It, I've got to, I am. Um, and we're working on that. But so I get frustrated and people around me get frustrated as well. But that's about the processes and the systems and the things that we use that, that govern society and govern the home and govern education and all that sort of thing. So it's the system that makes us feel really stink. And that's what's broken. It's not us because there are far more, and I'm so sure of this, there are so many more positives that come with neurodiversity, with autism, with ADHD, even with dyslexia, so many more positives than there are negatives. And yet what we tend to do is we focus on the negatives because they're the things that people go, yeah, yeah I struggle with this. And what we're going to do is flip the script on that. So with your, with your son, there's, and the frustration he feels, and, and, and we can dive into that, we can buy into that as well. And the frustration that maybe even sometimes you feel around that um, can lead you into thinking that this is what dyslexia is. And it is that, but it's also the, all these other things. So it's an and with that as well. And all those other things are so, they're just gold. So I work with adults, uh, starting to work with um, kids, mainly through parents and and teachers and principals, et cetera. But if we can let kids know that that you're not your condition, uh, it's a big part of who you are, but it's not not who you are. And also there's a goldmine of things that it can enable you to do, but because they're things you've always been able to do, they come naturally. We don't know what they are and we have never mind those things. And we think everybody else can do those things. So we take it for granted. 3D thinking, the yes. creativity, the deep empathy, especially with dyslexics. Oh my goodness. Like it's just ridiculous. And I don't know why that is. I've got no idea why, why that would be, but it's real. And that makes people with dyslexia really, really bloody good humans. And um, we can use that, but we take it for granted because we just think everybody's like that. And it's not yes. true. It's simply not true. And so so we've got to focus on what are those, what's golden about your son? And ha- does he know that, you know, and do, does he, how can he own those things? And how can how can we show him that that those things are what really matter, not speed of reading? No. And, and because they're frustrations, but they don't matter. Like they no. don't make you a better human. Like it's just not not at at all and it's interesting because you're describing him perfectly the the other thing that I thought was really interesting about what you said was how you learned the skills you're using now Mm -hmm. professionally really early on because they were your adaptation they were the the way that you got around the challenges that you have and I think Mm -hmm. that's when you look at neurodiverse um, people that's what I see. You know, I'm, mm. I would say I'm not particularly neurodiverse. I don't have a diagnosis and I don't have dyslexia, but I'm surrounded mm-hmm. by four, almost four men now who have dyslexia, who have anxiety, who have autism. And the creativity is phenomenal. And I'm really interested to know when you went into the workplace, how did you 
manage and how were mm. you managed mm. and, and did they get the best from you? Really good question. And that's a, that's a massive question too. Did they get the best from me? I think they tried. I don't think I allowed them to get the best from me. And if I remember it, because my ADHD means I've got no working memory, so I'll forget that I even said that. So maybe you can remind me. Uh, if See, I can't even remember what it was, was that point was. That's okay. So I was oh, I didn't, asking. I didn't, yeah, so I didn't allow them to get the best um, uh, out of me because I didn't know what was going on. I actually just thought I was dumb. I had some teachers at school that made me feel really, really stupid, and I hung on to that for a very long time. So my first role out of university was uh, in human resources in um, a big government department, the biggest government department, actually, uh, here in New Zealand. And we, I had some amazing, amazing managers. The prelude to all that was I was applying for a whole lot of policy jobs that I was not at all qualified for, and I kept getting rejected. And I've still got the rejection letters and they're just hilarious to look at those and the lack of humanity in those because they're just templates and it's just like, oh, it's awful. Like nobody had actually thought about the individual receiving this letter. Anyway, so I was really, really sick of um, applying for all these jobs and getting rejected. And I um, got invited to an interview for this graduate HR advisor and I'd been applying for policy advisor roles. So I kind of thought they were the same things and I didn't know what HR was. But I was so tired of these interviews and, and just failing, getting turned down, that I turned up and I said to myself, I just don't care. Like, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to get this job. It's just an opportunity for me to have a look around a building. And so I sat there and we had the best conversation in the world because it wasn't. It was a panel of, um, there were two people, other side of the table and me. And we were in this small little room in the center of the building. And we were having this conversation and we were just talking. And I was so relaxed and I was able to be myself and they really liked that. And I got, got the job eventually. They had a preferred candidate. She didn't take the job. So they came back to me and I got the job. And so I kind of fell into HR, which I think is really, really, I think is quite important. It's absolutely pivotal in terms of the work that I do today, but it, it's the perfect breeding ground to nurture those skills that I developed in school in terms of asking those questions. And I'm endlessly curious about people when we could travel I love airports I love just watching people and observing um, what they're doing and I'm not all that interested in conversations and, and what the content is I'm really interested in observing what's going on between people so mm -hmm. um, eyes facial expression uh, body language that sort of thing and almost and there's a here's the woo-woo part of some of my neurodiversity I see energy and it's not shimmers it's not light it's not different colors but I just see energy and I can feel what it's like to be those people so I get really immersed in the experience of watching people um, which kind of sounds really creepy when I think of myself saying that that's but, amazing but that's what happens and I love it and it's really really cool so and I, I use that in the work that I do now facilitating with people and, and coaching etc but to get back to your question I was really falling into HR where I was responsible eventually for being the champion of these people management processes that were not designed for people like me, which at the time I didn't know I was any different. Again, I just thought I was dumb. And so that employee life cycle uh, is all built. Um, now I've got a real bugbear about this and I do a keynote on it. It's about living and working at the uh, ends of the bell curve. 
But that employee life cycle expects a similar journey for everybody through the organization for them to experience that way. And it's based on the middle of the bell curve where, you know, one size fits most and we'll just go with, with that. And all these people management processes that I had to eventually champion and uh, design and endorse and roll out across massive organizations that I've worked in, I never understood them. They never made sense to me but they made sense to everyone else. So I just went with it and I made up so many lies and so much rubbish using all these buzzwords and all this research, you know, best practice, all this sort of stuff to justify these things. And people loved it. And I kind of rode the wave of that. But to me, it seemed really deceptive because I was like, these are rubbish. Like this makes no sense. And if people are actually like me and experience these things, why would we do this? Psychometric tests blow my mind. And we're actually my undoing uh, in my last uh, formal paid employment role, um, permanent role. In what way? Well, so I was the HR director of a um, a very large not-for-profit. And we had, at the time, around 1,500 staff. And we were looking at at doing some psychometric testing or utilizing psychometric tests in recruitment, which is the, you shouldn't do it. Like, just don't do it. And, and I, I said, well, someone's got to be the guinea pig, so I'll do them. So there was verbal and numerical reasoning. I mean, instantly going to be a disaster. And there was uh, one on, was it rational thinking? I don't know what it was, something. And I took these tests. There's this battery of tests and I can remember going through these things thinking, this is just too easy. Like we shouldn't use things that are just as easy as this. And then when I got the results back, it was as if someone had given me the answer sheet and I chose to ignore every single answer. Like it was a disaster. It was awful. And I, I remember thinking, how do I have this experience and this feeling of going, I'm nailing this and get these results back that go, these are not the same person. And I just felt hopeless. And the CEO was like, you know, can you explain this? And I'm like, oh, no, maybe there's a glitch in the test. And we went back to the provider and they're like, nope, not at all. Like this is, this is these are some of the lowest scores we've ever seen. And, I, and you know, me constantly having this imposter syndrome, it just reinforced it. I was like, I'm just not meant to be here. Like I'm not employable. <laughs> and I kind of always wanted to be my own boss. So it gave me a good excuse to go out on my own, right? But it was another opportunity for me to run. And it was another reason for me to run. It was another reason for me to not feel, feel good enough to feel like I could ever achieve, even though I was mm-hmm. achieving. Like despite all the evidence in my career, because I had, I had gone quite consistently, like each role was a step up that I'd ever taken. Mm. I never took a step sideways. There were always, there was always more responsibility. And I was always feeling like, like I was just fudging it and only just getting by, you know, as they say, by the skin of your teeth. I remember hiding in the, um, I worked for a big four accounting firm consulting with them. I remember hiding in the toilets each week when it came time to do um, our billing and timesheets, because it was an online system and we had to account for every six minutes and I have time blindness. So I've got no idea allocating that thing, but also um, the type of dyslexia I have is sequential. So I have like when I have to go through steps or process, you give me three steps to do um, by the time, you know, I get to step number two, I've forgotten step number one, step number three. It's as if number one never existed. 
So I, I couldn't use that system. I struggle getting into, you know, get, getting into platforms to record podcasts, check-ins at airports, ATM machines always muck me up. All those sorts of anything with a sequence, boom, gone. So I would I would hide. And it was just a great opportunity for me to just feel like I'm just not not worthy of the status of any of these roles. And so it was great to be able to go out on my own. Um, It was a bit of a relief, but also it gave me the opportunity to continue to hide as well. If you look at my CV, you look at my LinkedIn profile, you see I change jobs about every three years. I would say I always told people when they asked that I would uh, get bored after about 18 months, that the, the honeymoon period was over and I'd start looking for another job and it would take me another 18 months. The truth is that people would cotton on to the fact that I would have great ideas, but couldn't follow through. Um, My performance would plateau. I could never explain it. I had no idea what was going on. Again, I just thought my luck had run out. I've exhausted my skills. And I was responsible for some terrible things that I should never have been involved in, like um, organizational uh, remuneration reviews that require spreadsheets, like deep analysis of spreadsheets. Now, I I can't line up rows or columns on spreadsheets, and yet it was my responsibility to put advice to the chief executive of an organization with 10,000 people to say, here are some similarities. And I never once, like I would always, because of my um, my manner and my way of asking questions, et cetera, I, I got very used to at school and at university getting more time. So I manipulated the system. You could call it influence, but I think actually I was I was just very savvy with people and that enabled me to get my way. So I bought more time for assignments and I just ended up doing that at work as well. I made lots of excuses for why deadlines were missed and they were they were always something something else. It wasn't about me because I never wanted the heat to be on me. And um that that's really up. interesting. That's really interesting <laughs> because I'm seeing I'm seeing challenges with deadlines in my family life with some uh-huh. of my family and interesting to get some insight into that. Right. I, I guess I'm curious. I mean, you were clearly really good at some aspects of what you were doing and, mm-hmm. you know, you wouldn't have got to an HR director if you weren't good at some aspects of what you were doing. I'm curious if looking back, I think there were definitely things that got you there that you were good at. For sure. Otherwise you wouldn't have done so. But but yeah. looking back, how if you were in that situation again, or if if another employer was in that situation, what would you be suggesting that they could do to support somebody like you in a role yeah. like that? I think the easier answer that may sound trite, it might sound cliche, but it all comes down to kindness, right? I got my way because I was kind to people. I was promoted. I was invited around tables. I was asked to join projects because I was fun, easy, and good to work with. And like, I do have deep empathy for people. And so I could see where people were struggling. I would always help them. And part of that was a diversion as well. So if I was helping other people, it meant that I didn't need to get to the task that I was going to struggle with, right? Um, but I just, I still loved doing that. And I still do. I love helping people. And so to answer your question, I think it comes back to you need a manager or a leader who's willing to not just be patient, but to ask some questions that in a kind way that allow a person like me to open up. If I had the courage to admit 
that there were things going on for me that I couldn't explain, but I knew that I was smart and to be able to have those conversations 20 years ago, undoubtedly my career path would have changed. Um, my life would have changed. Would it have been better? Don't know. It's been pretty good, right? And I am. I keep coming back to the words that you used around my identity right at the start of um, this chat, Amanda. And I'm still figuring out who I am, like because I've been this person who's had to hide and had to mask and had to pretend some stuff for so long. And so when you get a diagnosis, especially around ADHD, I go, well, what is the, who is the real me? Like that's the conundrum for me is like, who, who, like, because I have these abilities to connect with people, but are they actually seeing the real me? And what does that mean? And actually the truth is it doesn't matter. And it's all me because we are who we, who we want to project to the world, but also who we feel like we are. And when that's, when there's an imbalance there, then that's when a, a problem um, lies. But I think that if we're able to be kind to ourselves and have some courage, if we've got managers who enable us, so I'm not big on empowerment, but I'm very big on enablement. If people can enable us to come out with those things and to say, this is what I'm struggling with. And I know this is really important. I also need you to recognize that these are the things that I'm amazing at. And I get to do that maybe 10% of my week. And you're asking me to do this thing, which is maybe 70% of my week. And let's both agree, I'm pretty rubbish at that. And I don't enjoy it. But also there comes a point to when you re- like with dyslexics, but absolutely with people who are ADHD positive is at the ability to hyper-focus on the stuff that we're interested and passionate about. Like I can get in an hour, I could get two days worth of work done. Whereas if I'm not interested in something, I could labor on that for two weeks, you know, for a task that should take me an hour. Right. Yes. And that's the reality of things. And I cannot change that. I cannot change that. So how about we have a conversation at work about this is the stuff that lights me up and this is the stuff that that turns me off and can I do more of more of this one and a bit less of this? So that takes some flexibility because you've got to go, well, actually, this is your job. So who else can do this? Is there somebody else who can, can do that? Sometimes there'll be the opportunity for that, but sometimes there's not. So I have to suck it up and I have to get on and work, find ways to deal with that, to get on with it, um, maybe to agree that the the quality isn't going to be great. So how can the quality be bumped up by, yep. by somebody else? Because what I tend to say is that my neurodiversity is a reason, but it's not an excuse. I have to take responsibility and ownership for the things that I'm not that great at. Um, when I let people down, which I hate to do, um, that I'm responsible for. They're still my responsibilities. I can't say, like, I cannot turn up to meetings late and go, oh, it's my ADHD again. You know, I forgot to take no. my meds or whatever else. Like, it's that's not right because we're adults. No. Yeah? Yeah. And so, and there are standards and ways of behaving. So I still have to take responsibility for that. But I also think that it's a manager and a leader's responsibility to go, how do I get the best out of my people and the people that I've got? And actually, what do I mean? What do we mean by the best out of those people? What is their best? Are we actually able to appreciate what they do best? Are we giving them the opportunity to be and do what they do best? Do they even know? Do we know? What's that? Like, how fun would that be? We've got a got a leader of a team who's really curious and go, all right, what do we think we're best at together? Like collectively, that's amazing. But individually, 
because sure. what I think I'm best at, you might think is something different as well. And how cool is that to get some acknowledgement for someone for you to go, Callum, actually, I reckon you're, you're great on the phone. Like your manner on the phone is amazing. I'm like, well, I don't even really like phones, but if something I don't like and you say that I'm better than most, cool, let's explore some more of that or whatever it is. So I yeah. think there's got to be some curiosity and some kindness and a willingness to have the conversation and to say, this is what I notice. Is this a thing for you? And I agree completely with that. Um, I use the word empathy rather mm-hmm. than kindness. Um, mm-hmm. I think empathy is the one of the three main things. Um, you know, there, there needs to be a bit of expertise somewhere about mm-hmm. neurodiversity and an awareness yep. and an environment which is conducive to this kind of conversation. Yeah, um, but empathy yeah. is where it starts. I agree completely. Yeah. Um, so the work I do is sort of a. Um, there's three aspects to it. It's about what I call developing uh, radically authentic workplaces. Now, one of them is having a catalyst ethos, which is that book there. It's around internal customer service. How do we serve each other as a team in order to serve our external customers? Because I think customer service has kept the level of service we can provide and convey to customers that walk in the shop is capped by how people are treated out the back of the shop, how we treat each other, right? And that regardless of role. So we've got to do that. There's an element of empathy in that. I think we need to harness different thinking, thinking differently about different thinking, harness neurodiversity, uh, especially now we need to, when, you know, the world's just turned into <laughs> chaos. It's all of it. It's all of it crazy. I think it's the neurodiverse people who have been sitting there in every organization. They are everywhere. We are everywhere untapped like there's a resource there that can answer the problems that we've never been able to solve or the new problems that have come up and I think there's a great opportunity there now the third thing is we need to grow and develop leaders who are unafraid of leading difference so the idea of recruiting for fit let's get rid of that in fact where are we different and how do we grow leaders who go right we've got these gaps in this team and I have some gaps who can help fill that rather than that I need to, the easiest thing for a manager to do, and this makes perfect sense, is to recruit people who are like them because they get them, you understand them, they they come with a set of expectations that you can understand and you know how they're going to be, show up and and what they're going to do. And so none of that is about visible diversity, but I think it's about um, hidden diversity and diversity of the mind. And so if we have leaders who are unafraid to lead people who challenge them who don't think the same way uh, who don't look at problems the same way which in itself takes some courage from that leader but that's where teams just that's where they blossom yeah totally. yeah so Callum tell me what's in your future we've talked a lot Ooh. about the past what's in your future Wow, what is in my future? So I've just launched a podcast called You, Me and ADHD. And it's a bit of a, a, it's an experiment, but I think it's got legs. And certainly the feedback, initial feedback is that there's some real value in this and it could be helpful. So that is, the reason that's an experiment is because what I want to do is develop a community uh, focusing around mainly ADHD, but um, neurodiversity in general, where we really are flipping the script to a point where we don't think that neurodiversity is, is a deficit and that it's actually something that we should be 
proud of, organizations should embrace, but also individuals should embrace uh, and go, this is what I can do as well. To the point where ultimately I would love it if neurotypicals wished they were neurodiverse. You know, you go, I wish I could do that because I think that's amazing, right? Now, the reason we talk about neurodiversity, um, gifts and talents, et cetera, which I kind of cringe a wee bit at, but I do think there's an element of, of superpower in this as well. And the reason we think uh, that people with dyslexia or autism have superpowers is because they're a minority, because what they can do is rare. Yet there's so much fear and stigma and shame around neurodiversity, especially as adults, that we focus on the negative and we don't amplify the positive. Now, what I want to do is play a role in amplifying uh, the positive. So my future is about helping individuals, teams, leaders, organizations, and maybe even communities to appreciate difference. Because I think that's where we fall over. Like there's this quest, it seems, and especially in the world of social media, and like I've got teenage daughters and they're growing up in a world where comparison is rife and it's awful and it's so sinister. And there's this fight to be the same, to be like someone else and not be who you are. But if we could appreciate the fact that difference is great rather than try to be the same, like the sea of sameness that's that we're all seem to be striving for is wasting time. Like it's wasting lives and it's wasting millions of opportunities each day to do, do good stuff. And so we're kind of focusing on the wrong thing. I'd yeah. love for a, a small cohort of us to focus on the right things and go, these are the amazing things that my mind can do. If we were to work together and do some stuff, what could we do? And what might that look like? And really, it's not even about impact or outcomes. It's about, do you feel good about yourself? Because you should, you know, because what's going on in your head, what goes on in your heart, all that's important. And like, um, share some of that stuff. Like, let's break down those walls, the, the barriers that we think I'm not good enough, or I can't do this, or I'm really, really anal about the process that I use to make my muesli in the morning. Um, and I get caught up on that. And if I get interrupted, then I have to start again or whatever it is. Like everyone's got quirks and everyone's a bit weird. Let's embrace all that and, and just sure. get a little bit more weird. Yeah. Maybe organizations need to get a wee bit more weird as well because we're all trying to trying to fit in. And wouldn't, they, wouldn't they all be much more interesting if everybody oh. was just a little bit unique rather than yeah. everybody looking and sounding the same? I completely yep. agree with that. I'm mm. I'm loving seeing what you're doing, and I wish you all the best with it, Callum, because it's much much needed. Thank you so much. Um, it's been lovely to chat, um, and if I can help you Amanda or anybody watching um, listening in any way feel free to get in touch uh, pretty easy to find on uh, LinkedIn or um, social media so it'd be great if anybody wants to just have a chat and if I can help you out in any way thanks so much for uh, for having me on it's been a, a cool chat sorry to rant and rave but I kind of get on my high horse like I'm really oh. passionate about this so That's yeah <laughs> thank you across and it's great <laughs> thank you thank you That ends this episode of Send Lightened with Amanda Sokel. For more information and to contact Amanda, please go to community.amandasokel.com.